Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you so much for your faithfulness. There are many times where we can just see the flames around us, just the trials around us, and we don't look to the side to see that the Son of Man is there with us. But Lord, we know you've never promised to save us from troubles, but you have promised to get us through them. And so, Father, I want to thank you so much for the beautiful reminder we had today in song that you are faithful and we want to put our faith in you. Father God, right now at this moment, we want to ask that the Holy Spirit come here, be with us in our hearts, our minds. Lord, the same Spirit that inspired the Bible, Lord, be present in a mighty way. Illuminate our minds so that we can understand your word properly. But I ask that you do one more thing on top of that. And that is, Lord, by your Spirit, apply your word to our life. Give us your grace to have the, the courage to step towards you. Inspire us and bless us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember when I was in about fifth or sixth grade, these really cool new shoes started to be worn by my friends. And I thought they were the coolest shoes. And um, our family wasn't wealthy growing up, um, not at all. Um, my parents were two immigrants from Yugoslavia. My dad would be gone before the sun came up and would be home after midnight working really hard to put food on the table. But I wanted these shoes. And so I asked and I asked and I asked and I asked and I said, they're, they're, everyone's got them. They're really, they, they're such cool new shoes, they're new shoes, new shoes. And so finally dad's like, all right, let's go. And so we went to AMR All Sports. And we were looking at all these Nikes and Converse and the Adidas and I'm looking for the shoes and I'm like, oh, here they are. And he said, what? And I was holding Converse Chuck Taylors. And my dad was so appalled that I would consider these new shoes. He said, Boris, I had these when I was a kid. What are you talking about, these new shoes? Why are you talking about the new? But they were new for me, right? And so today's sermon is actually called Something Old, Something New. Something Old, something new. But before we begin, I want us to consider this mission statement. So this is a mission statement of an educational institution. And it says, to be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Can we say amen to that mission? In fact, one of the biggest answers to prayer that my family felt to be able to move to this area was because I wanted my children to be a part of a school where the school did not just care about academics but cared about their Christian development. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a good statement to live up to, right? The founders of this school, they knew what true education was, right? Anyone know what school that's the mission statement of? You might have heard of it. It's called Harvard. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but Harvard is probably at the very front line of secularization of the world at the moment. But there was a time where they would exclusively only hire Christian staff. And in every subject, doesn't matter what subject you took, it was mandatory that you actually do some Christian Bible classes. In fact, at its founding, the number one degree that they'd focused on was ministry equipping people to go and share the good news with the world and then the rest was just 
uh, the studies and, and they would teach in them, similar to Avondale, right? Where you teach the nurses that it's ministry. You teach the teachers that it's ministry, right? You teach the lawyers that it's ministry. But as time passed, they started to drift away from this mission statement and became more and more and more secular. And a group of pastors in the New England area got very concerned because the harbor that they went to and their grandparents went to was no longer following the mission. And they tried to get Harvard back on mission. Let's get back, God. Let's get back to Christian development in all that we do. But there was just no hope. And so they approached a very rich philanthropist who was of the same convictions, Mr. Yale. And so 80 years later, Yale University is formed. Except in their motto is Luxet Veritas. Veritas was the Harvard's motto, which means truth. Luxet is light. And so we're not just going to be focusing on, on knowing and academia. We're going to be the light of the world. We, our, our motto is light and truth. How Christian-focused is Yale these days? It's the exact same as Harvard. These guys are driving secularization of America and by America's influence of the world in a very extraordinary way. What a far way away from the vision and mission that its founders had set those institutions up for, yeah? And imagine if they stayed on task, right? The influence, the education, the means. Imagine if they stayed on task. Maybe the whole world would have by now heard the good news. And we know biblically what happens after that, right? But see, what this is describing or illustrating is something called mission drift. What's it called, church? Mission drift. Mission drift is where you slowly, gradually, but surely are drifting away from what you set out to be. Today's going to be a bit of a challenging sermon. Um, it challenges Ash and me more than you. Um, see, because after studying the Word, looking into the spirit of prophecy, looking into history, we, um, we maybe have been doing the wrong thing really well. And one thing we believe with all of our heart is that the closer we align ourselves with the way God told us to do things in His world, the more we will see Him move. I really do believe that. I think the biggest thing that's in the way for God to move is us. And yet, if we step out in faith and just trust that He knows best and what He revealed in His Word is best, if we just align with His will, then His will will be done. So let's see what I'm talking about. John chapter 9. Now, prior to this, Jesus comes onto the scene and the reality is the world does not know who he is. They don't. He's a stranger. And yet, when he starts his ministry, he starts to reveal to the people over and over and over and over again his authority, his power, that he is the Son of God, that he is Christ. 
In fact, for those of you who are reading along in the Mark devotional, in the book of Mark right now, we finished this week and we're entering a new phase of Mark where they've just realized this is the Son of God and now Jesus is going to start teaching them what his mission was. And so Jesus up to this point in John, he's been revealing his power, he's been revealing his authority and he's called his 12 disciples. And look at what the Bible says Jesus does. The Bible says, then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. What did Jesus do? He gave. What did he do? He gave them what? Power and authority. Now, don't miss this. Up to this point, Jesus was demonstrating that he has power and authority. And yet, look at what he does. He gives that to them. Why? So that they can now experience what God can do through them. And so he gives them Jesus' version of a rise. Are you guys ready? We're going to go through Jesus' training institution right now, right? He's about to train the 12 of how to do this. So let's do this. As you see, it's a very thorough training. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. All right, it's kind of not sounding too great, but okay. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. By the way, Ash and myself, we've been a part of Arise and other discipleship training programs for many years, and a part of that course is door knocking. And the first day of outreach, everyone who's the cool cat, the the funny guy, the class clown, the chatty ones, they're really quiet that afternoon. And there's just this nervousness in the room. And people go, and there's so many thoughts. What if they reject me? What if they don't say that? What if I don't know what to do? What if I stuff it up? What if I... Can you imagine if what we were sending them to do, it's like, yeah, you can come to Arise, but what you got to do is go door knocking and find someone who will let you stay at their house. Uh, yeah, my name's Boris. Um, I'm actually in town for a little Bible college and um, I need a place to live during that time. No, I can't pay rent because a labourer is worthy of his wages. Oh no, it won't just be a short time. I'll be here for the whole time. Yeah. So... <laughs> Right? What we do is actually scary, but not like this. And they would get sent out to foreign territories to find a place to stay, and they were to stay there and minister out of that place. And the Bible says, And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. And look what the Bible says. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Oh, sorry, yes, good correction. Luke chapter 9, not John. Now, by the way, the next one's going to be Luke as well. Now, don't miss this. Jesus gave them authority. He gave it to them. Preach. Heal. He didn't model the behavior of guys, go bring them so I preach to them. Go bring them so I heal them. You follow? He gave it to them. 
in the very next chapter, Luke chapter 10, it's going to be John on the screen, but that's a typo. In Luke chapter 10, do you know what Jesus does in the very next chapter? He sends out the 70. So, so don't miss this. You don't know the name of any of the 70, do you? We just know them as the 70. So what it seems to appear here is Jesus gets a following and then he gives that following authority to go preach and share. And as the following grows, he doesn't now tell that 70, hey, go bring people to the 12 who I gave power to. But rather, as the following grows, the following receives power. You follow? Because God wants to communicate that every single person who chooses Jesus can also experience what Jesus can do through them. Not just in you, but through you, yeah? Look at this quote from the Acts of the Apostles. The Bible, uh, Ellen White says this. When he sent forth the twelve and afterward the seventy to proclaim the kingdom of God, it says he was teaching them their duty to impart to others what he had made known to them. Don't miss this. In all his work, he was training them for individual labor. And this last part is the most important, I think. To be extended as their numbers increased. Do you guys catch what this is saying? Jesus had 12 followers. And guess what he did? He empowered the 12 and gave authority to the 12 to go share and reveal to the world what God revealed to them. And as that number grew to 70, guess what he did? He empowered the 70 and gave the 70 authority to go and share and reveal what God had revealed to them. And we're told that he was modeling here a behavior, a culture, a way of doing things, even as the numbers increase. You, you, you get what I'm saying? The 70 were not told, hey, the 12 are the special, so bring him to the 12. No, no, no. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you give your life to him, he has called you to share what you have found. And he hasn't just called you, but he's given you a power you didn't possess before. He's given you an authority you didn't possess before. And now all of a sudden, the work Jesus has done in you, you get to experience him doing that in someone else through you. I feel like we've made a pretty big deal of pastors. Now, not in Australia. To be honest, I feel like in Australia, we don't really care for authorities. Right? I remember being a little kid and my parents would be watching TV and then someone would be making fun of John Howard's accent. You guys kind of remember when they do impressions of Johnny? Like, that's just us. We just kind of, as a culture, seem to not care too much about the prestige of leadership, right? We, we team, seem to have like that whole tall poppy syndrome and we just cut people down. And, and, and do you know what? That actually suits me a lot because I know myself and I'm very well aware that I'm probably more broken than you. And the whole idea of being lifted up or revered or something like that is such a scary concept to me because if you knew me, you wouldn't. But I've been to countries and parts of the world where just by the very virtue of being a pastor, they wouldn't even let me carry my luggage. It's true, I went to India. as this tiny boy just like barely moving that thing. And I was like, look, let me carry. No, 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 pastor. No, 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 no. But around the world, it's not just here. We've, we've almost started to make celebrities of pastors around the place, haven't we? 
which is kind of crazy for a Christian to do, considering that if you read the Bible from cover to cover, do you know how many times pastors are mentioned? Once. It's in Ephesians chapter 4. It's the only time that the word pastor appears in the Bible. That's interesting, right? It's a, li- it's, it's a part of a list of spiritual gifts. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Right? So this is the pastors. We made it. Ash, we're on the list. But why? Why did he give pastors? Why did he give these gifts? Look at what the Bible says. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. For many, many years, I believe God gave me the gift to be a teacher, to be an evangelist, to be a pastor, to do ministry. But that's not what the Bible says those gifts are for, is it? The Bible says that those gifts, that those abilities, that those those callings are to equip you to do ministry. Now, I feel like that's unfair because I really, really love giving Bible studies to people. And the less time, quite frankly, I can spend with converted people, the more productive I feel my time is. But that's a delusion of pride. See, because for every 1,000 church members we have in the Adventist church, there's one pastor. Now, I'm not a very gifted minister. I'm really not. But let's just say you had a very, very, very gifted minister like Pastor Ashley. There is just no way. I know him. We've hung out heaps. There is zero chance, absolutely no chance that he can accomplish the work of a thousand. There's just not. In one week, he cannot, he cannot do a thousand hours worth of work. But if everyone does an hour, then you get a thousand hours worth of work. This world is growing too rapidly, too fast for you to think that me and Ash and the pastors can do the job. However, if you can catch the vision of what God can do through you. By the way, a thousand is crazy. We can't, we can't do the job of 50. We can't. But if we, 250, 300 of us here, if we all do our part, it'll be far more productive If Ash and I are there supporting every single person, training, answering questions, making sure that as many of us as possible are laboring for the salvation of others, there is no chance that in five years every individual in Mwollomba has not actually properly heard the message and had the opportunity to choose for themselves whether or not they want to choose Jesus. But if it's left to us, this community would just outgrow our ability. And so, the Bible teaches that these gifts were not for them to do ministry, it was for you to be equipped, for you to be trained, for every single one of you to feel, yep, I know how to do this. 
And not only do I know how to do this, I know that God's given me the power, God's given me the authority, I've got the Holy Spirit with me, let me share it with whoever God puts in my path. But is this how they practice it, right? This is a theory, this is why their gifts are, but is this how they practiced it? Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, but I actually feel like we give too much credit to the 12 disciples, or 11. Because we feel like they finished the work, right? They turned the world upside down, right? There's not a place where the gospel was not heard, yeah? And we attribute it to the 12. But look what the Bible specifically says. In Acts chapter 8, is a very significant chapter in the Bible. Now, right before it was the stoning of Stephen and a great persecution against Christianity broke out. And look at what the Bible says in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. That's the death of Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And don't miss this. It says, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But then Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was led to record this last bit. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, uh, uh, pardon me, of Judea and Samaria, except who? Except the apostles. Do you know who are the only ones that didn't take it everywhere? Those leaders. And look at verse 4. The Bible says, therefore, those who were scattered, that's everyone except the apostles, went everywhere preaching the word. So this wasn't just theory for them. This wasn't just something that they say and then practice different. The laity, the members, you, they were the ones that took the message everywhere. And in Acts chapter 8, there's a report that comes back to Jerusalem and it says when the apostles heard that there was a church established in Samaria, they went and visited the church. And why do you think they visited the church? Probably to train it. And do you know why I think so? Because in Acts chapter 8, we're then introduced to Philip. And in the very next chapter, he's having this interaction with the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch, guess what he has? He has a Bible question. And notice, Philip doesn't say, oh, that's such a good question. If you actually veer left and head in that direction for two days, you're going to come across a guy called Peter and he'll know how to answer that for you. But what does he do? He gives him a Bible study. He answers it and then he baptizes him. The disciples come, spend time with Philip, and the next story we have about Philip is he's giving Bible studies and doing it. You follow? Christianity is meant to spread like wildfire, and wildfires don't keep returning to the source, they keep looking for the fresh. Often, maybe many of you have had someone at work or a colleague or a student friend or, or someone in your life, maybe a family member, and they come and ask you a Bible question and your answer has been, oh, I'd love to introduce you to my pastors. They'll be able to answer that for you. Ash and I feel that that's actually our shortcoming. Because we believe that every single person when asked that question, should be able to say, I would love to answer that for you. Because God 
can work through you. And we want every individual here to experience what God can do through them. Now, we started talking about mission shift. We're going to go through a bit of a history lesson here real quick. So, the year is 1886. And Elder G.B. Starr was interviewed by a newspaper in America. Now, the Adventist church had just been around officially for a little over 20 years, but it was spreading through America like wildfire. There were other far more established denominations that seemed to be pretty static, if not declining, and yet this young movement that's only been in existence for 20 years is just, it's, it's taking the country by storm. And so this interview was done and the journalist asked the elder, he says, by what means have you carried forward your work so rapidly? How on earth have you done this so quickly? And the answer might be interesting to some of you. Look at what he says. He says, well, in the first place, so in other words, the most significant factor as to why we're able to do this, replied the elder, we have no settled pastors. Hold on. How were you able to get this done so fast? Oh, we don't have pastors over churches, that's how. Doesn't that just seem so contrary? Like, don't you need that person that you're paying to drive this and lead this? No, guess why? Because God can use you. And so he goes on to say, he says, our churches are taught largely to take care of themselves, while nearly all the ministers work as evangelists in new fields. 26 years later, General Conference President A.G. Daniels um, was addressing a ministerial institution in Los Angeles. And this is what he has to say. He said, we have not settled our ministers over our churches as pastors to any large extent. It's a little different. It's a little different, yeah? But not too different because he goes on to say, in some of the very large churches we have elected pastors, but as a rule, we have held ourselves ready for field service, evangelistic work, and our brethren and sisters have held themselves ready to maintain, maintain their church service and carry forward their church work without settled pastors. Now, I included the next part of his statement because I think he, um, he hits something that we're on the other side of history that we can maybe see whether or not what he said was true. He said, and I hope this will never cease to be the order of affairs in this denomination. For when we cease our forward movement work and begin to settle over our churches, to stay by them, to do their thinking and their praying and their work that is to be done, then our churches will begin to weaken and to lose their life and spirit and become paralyzed and fossilized and our work will be on retreat. That's just who we were. That's how we governed. That's how we believed. We didn't believe that God had special people amongst the special people. We believed that if you chose God, you were one of his special people that he can use. If we travel forward another 45 years and come to 1957, HMS Richard Sr. in his ripe age was presenting to young up-and-coming ministers at uh, Washington Missionary College. And look at what he says. The time of too many of our preachers, instead of being occupied with carrying the message into new fields, 
is taken up in settling church difficulties and laboring for men and women who should be towers of strength instead of subjects of labor. When I was baptized and later became a young preacher, we looked upon churches that had to have settled pastors over every flock as being decadent, brittle, fragile, weak, soft. Are you guys seeing a drift? Are you slowly seeing? We have no settled pastors. Our church members don't need it, they're doing it. We pretty much don't have any. Most of our churches, they do it. Some big churches we haven't, but most, they're doing it. I remember when. I remember when. We used to view churches that way as being weak, but these days too many of our pastors are trying to sort out church difficulties rather than being on the front lines. Let's jump forward another 37 years. This is from... This was from uh, the 1994 uh, Elders' Handbook. It says, during the Middle Ages, the clergy, that means the paid staff, yeah? The clergy largely took over the work of the church. The Seventh-day Adventist church still struggles to overcome that medieval tradition and seeks to restore the biblical concept that all believers are ministers, Members in general and elders in particular need a greater vision of their significance and responsibility to the church and in its work. You seeing a drift? Somehow in 1994, we're saying, oh, we've always struggled with this and we're finding it really hard to shake, but it hasn't. We've been drifting. Elders Manual 2016. The Seventh-day Adventist church is growing rapidly. And many churches are understaffed. In such situations, there may be large multi-church districts where the pastor is shared among several churches and is able to visit each church only once every two or three months. It is the faithful service of the local elders that helps keep these churches strong and growing. Have we been drifting? You don't really notice when you drift. You don't. I remember, like, I grew up going to the Gold Coast to swim. And one thing our parents learned is that your kids will never come out of the water where they go in. Right? Especially at Kira. That, that current. It just, but as a kid, you don't realize it. You think you're in that same spot catching waves. And it's not till you look up and you realize, what? Where am I? And you're 100 meters, 200 meters down the beach. It happens slowly, and yet look what we're told from the pin of inspiration. The Bible, uh, sorry, Ellen White says this. This was a talk given at the Review Chapel in 1901. She says, the idea that our ministers must hover hover over the churches just as well, pardon me, I'm going to start that again. The idea that our ministers must hover over the churches might just as well be given up now as later. The members of the churches must be taught to keep themselves at work showing the intelligence and spirituality God requires in those who claim to be members of His church. Now, I don't know about you, but does this sound like pretty revolutionary concepts? I know for me, when I was studying, and I'm like, man, just what we're doing seems to not be exactly what they're doing. 
And he was like, man, I think we've discovered this new thing. Like, we've got to really, we've got to stop focusing on how many baptisms we get. But we should maybe, maybe the metric, right? Because there is good to have measurables. Listen, that's biblical. They counted in Acts. But maybe the metric for pastors shouldn't be how many baptisms there are, but rather how many members are leading people to baptism. Right, so that we're investing in you, we're training you, we're supporting you. Whenever, you don't have to worry about what if they ask me something I don't know because you will be available to help you through this stuff and then you get trained and then can train someone else. Does that make sense? Like, we just, it's like, man, this is such a new thing. This is revolutionary. And then you kind of discover our history and you realize, hold up, this isn't new. This isn't revolutionary. This, this is who we were. This is what God's called us to be. This is how God set up the apostolic church. That whenever a new person becomes a believer in Jesus, they're not just a believer and a pew warmer, they are a worker, not out of indentured servitude. They are a worker because God wants to work through them. God wants every individual to experience what God can do through them. And this was just how things were until somewhere it wasn't. Until now, it seems like it could never be. But Ash and I, we believe that the closer we align ourselves with how the Bible tells us to do it, we believe the more we'll see God work. I think a lot of people don't realize how dumb I am. And I'm very thankful for that. Um, it still allows you to give me some respect. Um, but when I talk to people, it doesn't matter what church I've been a part of, when I talk to them and hear what job they're doing and what education they have and how they passed high school, I'm just like, what am I doing ministering to these people? Across the board, all of you, I honestly always feel like you're so much more better equipped, you're so much more gifted, you're so much sharper, and I just often am just left with like, man, if God's using me, imagine what he could do with you. So things need to change, right? There's no point kind of discovering something true and then just ignoring it. But how they change, we've got to be pretty wise about it. But one thing that Ash and I, we really want, we're praying for, we feel, we feel really led in this direction. And that is that we want to teach, train, empower, and equip every single member to be comfortable and confident to share their faith with anyone. And so we're going to start a new series next week. It's called The Simple Truth. This is actually a set of study guides that Ash and I are currently putting together. And each week, we're going to teach you how to teach people the Bible study. So next week, we're going to be learning the Word of God. And we've, we've really stuck to the theme because here's the thing 
We can try to be clever and we can try to be really whoa. And you know what? There's a real place for that. I love listening to podcasts and preachers that are just diving deep. But sometimes that can be too deep to someone who doesn't even know who Jesus is. And God is such an amazing God that even though His truth is so deep that it will confound the wisest man, it is so simple that the simplest among us can grasp it fully. And so we've tried with these study guides to really hone in that this is simple. We're we're sharing the truth simply. And so each study guide is six to seven verses. And what we're going to be doing, we're going to be sharing the Bible study with you, but not just the Bible study, but sharing with you how to share it, what illustrations to use, how to make the appeal, what might be some difficult questions and objections and how to go about answering them. Ash and I, we were talking. Um, You guys would be familiar that last quarter we did um, a fast training as one of the Sabbath schools. And in one of those discussions, one of the members of our church, they shared how when they were growing up, there wasn't AYC, there wasn't a rise. And so their kids are learning how to share their testimony and their kids have learned how to give a Bible study and because they're older than their kids, it's assumed that they know it. And they shared, but we've never been trained how to do this. And it just dawned on me that that's kind of true. See, I got converted at a training event. And ever since then, there's just been plenty of options for people to learn. But that was actually new at that time. And and Ash and I, we've been thoroughly involved with training institutions for years. And yet we feel like when we come to church, we kind of default into the expected pastor role rather than sharing and training what we do when we're at Arise or LMT or Mission College or wherever, right? And what we feel Guys, we're about to finish our second year of a two-week lockdown. The reality is we don't know what tomorrow is. That's why I say that. Right now, it's like we're opening up, and you know what? I hope so. But the reality is we don't know. And so, how best can we use our time? And maybe it's to preach messages that, that make us feel good or that just kind of show us a new insight. Or maybe it's to learn how to share our faith with anyone. So that if the doors of this building need to be shut in the future, the work of the church doesn't stop. Because wherever you are, the commission's going forward. And I understand, I understand that many might feel, I want to, I don't know how to. I know how to give the study, but I wouldn't know how to answer the questions. I can read through the study with people, but I don't know how to get them to make a decision. I don't know how to network. I don't know how to share my testimony. We want to spend the next season in this church training every single individual here so that by God's grace, we may all feel more equipped to share with everyone and not just feel like we've got to direct them to someone else but rather get to the place where we believe with all of our might that I can experience what God can do through me. It's about time that we do the work of a thousand.
because I don't know about you, but I am so deeply convicted that Jesus is coming soon. If these last couple of years don't wake you up, I don't know what will. And yet my heart breaks because the more I see that he's close, the less opportunity as a pastor I've had to get to them. The worst people to do it is pastors because the reality, the nature of our job makes you our community. So our community is essentially people of the faith. And we love you, don't get me wrong. And I know a lot of people are hurting and we want to be there for you. This is not about abandonment. This is about the commission. But see, many of you, most of you probably, when we got shut down and Ash and I were limited to just ministering to the people of of our church or the contacts we already had, you probably still went to work and had people that were not aware of the truth there. Maybe you still went to school and had some friends at school that still didn't know the truth there. Life still leads you anywhere and wherever you are is where the church is. And wherever the church is, God's authority and power is there to be able to share to others what God has revealed to you. And so we want to ask that you pray for us. That you pray for us as leaders to be able to help every single person feel supported and, and, and feel confident that they're not out there with alone, they're out there with the Holy Spirit and that every single individual, this, this message that God has given us, man, an illiterate 18-year-old was able to find it. It's simple. It's simple to understand. And by God's grace, we will all experience how simple it is to share. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you so much that in spite of the drift, you found us. But Father, we don't want to be content with the status quo. We don't want to just accept, ah, things just happened. But rather, we want to line ourselves up as closely as possible with your will. Father, I want to pray for every individual in this church, every individual that was not able to come today. Lord, you know we want them deeply to be here with us. But I pray that every person under the influence of this church that believes in you, Lord, that you train us, you equip us, you use us, you empower us so that there is not a single soul in this valley that has not fully heard your message and been given the choice to choose you. Father, we don't have a lot of time, so we ask you to move quickly in Jesus' name. Amen.